This is Salt and Spine. I would love people to engage with Nigerian or Ghanaian cuisine in the way that they do with Italy. And for us in five to ten years to be able to talk about the different regional cuisines in Nigeria and the different regional cuisines in Ghana. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Zoe Ajonia. Now, Zoe is the chef and founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, a pop-up restaurant and supper club that's taken place in various places around the world, from London, where Zoe lives, to Berlin and New York. Now, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen has grown into a distributor of African ingredients and spices. In 2014, Zoe gathered her work as a writer and chef, bringing recipes from her experiences in Ghana and running her supper club into her debut cookbook titled Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And the book was recently reissued and adapted for an American audience. Now, Zoe's well-received pop-up first started out as a way to fund her master's degree in writing from the University of London, but the Supper Club took off and ultimately helped inspire her to find more exciting recipes and to learn more about the Ghanaian cuisine that she was cooking. In 2014, Zoe visited Ghana, where she connected with her family and friends and set out to learn more about the local cuisine and the ingredients that inspire it. While there, she found the recipes and stories that later came to make up her cookbook, and she deepened her knowledge of Ghanaian food and culinary traditions. This cookbook itself is explorative and exciting, and Zoe even includes soundtracks with her recipes to invoke a sense of place and flesh out the experience of Ghanaian cuisine. The book includes an extensive guide to ingredients, as well, educating readers about the spices and flavors that are central to Ghanaian food. From cover to cover, this cookbook is also filled with colorful pictures of mouthwatering dishes and insightful tips scrawled on each recipe. The book, as Zoe says, is an invitation to learn more about Ghanaian food and to bring the ingredients of West Africa into our day-to-day cooking. So we've got a great show for you today. You'll hear from Zoe about the ways we can change the food media landscape to better represent African cuisines, the nuances and complexities of African cuisines that are often left out, and you'll be able to find some excerpted recipes from her book on our website. Plus, as always, you'll see Zoe at work dreaming up a wonderful meal with our signature culinary game. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where I sat down with Zoe Ajonia to talk cookbooks. Hi, Zoe. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a miracle that we've connected through this internet, um, whatever's happening to the internet, having a hiccup. But yes, I'm very happy to I be know. here. Thank you for having me. Yes, thrilled to have you with the miracle of technology, internet issues, halfway across the globe. We're making it work today. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so excited to talk to you about your career and uh, your cookbook. And we always like to start with our guests just by learning a little bit more about your personal life and your relationship to food. So we'd like to start at the beginning and talk a little bit about the role that food played in your life when you were growing up. So I, I believe you were born in in Essex. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is right. Yeah, I was born in um, Essex in a convent for unmarried mothers. But I was brought up in Deptford, South East London, the first six years, and then the rest of, then I spent a bit of time in Ghana, then Deptford, then um, Woolwich, and then Brighton, then London, then, then now, which is international. <laughs> yes, yeah. As and, often as I can be. 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the role that food played in your life as a kid? What was your relationship to food? What sort of food memories do you have? And how did cooking factor into that? Oh, yeah. So I suppose contextually, it's useful to say that my mum's Irish and my dad's Ghanaian. So I'm a third culture kid and I'm the first English person in my family. So I had sort of my mum's Irishness, Irish sense of taste and flavour and profiles. And then obviously my dad's, which was extremely the other end of the scale in terms of texture, taste and smell and all those things. And so, you know, I got to explore a wide range, I suppose, of, of food and also the, the English food in the middle. But food became incredibly important in to me and in my household because it was for my parents as immigrants to the UK, I could always see that food was this really amazing tool to transport them back to home. And it was like, you know, it was just imbued with so much more than I mean, obviously, anyone who gets a food parcel is going to be pleased, you know, and anyone who brings, who goes shopping for themselves and selects all these ingredients that reminds them of home, they're going to be happy. But then there's this extra level of something meditative and nostalgic and dreamy that takes people back to, to home. And I noticed that with my mum and especially with my dad. But the reason Ghanaian food in particular became more significant to me was because I didn't have a good context of Ghanaian culture around me in London growing up. Whereas I spent loads of time in Ireland, so I had a really strong idea of Irishness. What is, what is my Irish ancestry about? How does that show up in me? But I didn't have sure. that same connection to Ghana. And so my dad cooking that food became this kind of gateway, if you like, into his world and his history and his culture, and therefore mine. Yeah, you've written before about your dad bringing home ingredients that were new to you and sort of exotic to you and that you really had to kind of pepper him with questions and that yeah. you were very inquisitive as a kid, right? So you took an interest in the the ingredients and the process of cooking from quite an early age. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, my dad was a very was a very quiet man. So like engaging with him in conversation wasn't particularly easy. Um uh-huh. And so cooking became this other tool then for me to get spend time with him or like, I don't know, try to get to know him. But um, so I learned mostly by osmosis and just by like watching a lot of the time. But yeah, so I started, I think when I was about eight or nine, I was cooking like next to him on the, the hob. And it was just yeah a process of curiosity and gentle questions and, you know, softly, softly catchy Ghanaian cookery lessons. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you write too about cooking for some of your friends when you were younger, right? You would cook for yeah. for school friends and things. What was that experience like to be, you know, I think a lot of folks learn to cook and cook for family members at an early age, but to cook for people outside of your family, for friends and people that you know at school as a child, what was that experience like? Did you take anything from that? I mean, okay, let's say child is quite, it makes me sound like I was six or something at MasterChef and it's like, <laughs> isn't what was happening at all by any stretch okay, of the imagination. Sure, sure. I was a, an adolescent, I suppose, like late coming into teenagehood, whatever that is. And, you know, I'm, because I'm going to give my age away now, but I'm a latchkey kid as well, you know, so I'm from that generation where we kind of, there was an element of like looking after yourself after school and cooking your sister, like making your sister's packed lunch and breakfast and da da da. So I guess I'd grown up a little bit with this kind of self-reliance anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eating was a big deal on the Irish side of my family because it was a big family and mealtimes were big occasions. At home, it was more kind of nuclear and stuff. But 
for say for friends it was like me cooking for my other kind of latchkey friends I suppose <laughs> you know what I mean um sure so yeah Lisa Nelson in particular it was great because I was cooking things like peanut butter stew or corned beef and rice like slightly weird things for them it's fun to share things when they're enjoyed and it became like those kind of dishes became the things that my friends bugged me all the time to cook once they had it once it was like can you cook that thing again yeah particularly peanut butter stew yeah, which which we'll come back to in a minute because I know that really launched um, the food career for you. But before we get there, can you talk a little bit about what you thought your path might be as you got older? I know that you were pursuing writing. Like, where did you sort of think you were going professionally before we get to this moment where you really sort of dive into the food lane? Well, probably some of my lecturers would argue nowhere fast, but I was trying to... <laughs> I was coming back to to writing because my first degree was law, which I had done because, well, honestly, because my I had a you know a discipline you know disciplinarian West African father, and it was always in the context of time and setting, it was very much about academia and getting a solid, reliable profession. So I did my duty and I did law, but I had always hankered for literature and I loved reading and I loved writing and I wanted that's what I wanted to do but I didn't come back to it until you know 15 years or so later when I did this pathway course to Goldsmith MA in creative writing and that was the same time that I started Ghana Kitchen and I was like it was like this magical moment of synchronicity where this thing suddenly could give me money to support me doing this other thing that I've been wanting to do my whole entire life so Ghana Kitchen fed metaphorically and figuratively (laughs) the financing of my MA at Goldsmiths in creative writing and then the MA gave me the gift of being able to like eventually write this cookbook so it was kind of magical you know like the universe had it all sewn up for me I didn't have to think too much about any of it (laughs) but yeah writing was the, the agenda and Ghana Kitchen in some ways was something that Beyond it being a fun thing, I did occasionally and to support myself through the MA so I didn't have to work full time for anybody else. It hadn't, it wasn't doing anything other than being a fun thing, you know, even though the press were picking it up and yada, yada, yada. I, I wasn't personally taking it as a serious business concern because it was just this thing I did for fun and money and sometimes, you know, mostly fun because I wasn't making a lot of money out of it. <laughs> well, and then other things happened. I went to live in Berlin for a bit. I did a kitchen residency in Neukölln because I thought I was going to be this bohemian writer in Berlin. Um, and of mm-hmm. course, I needed to earn money. So I cooked. <laughs> and then the, the kitchen dominated there as well. So suddenly I had press and TV in Germany coming to this spot. I was cooking in the Werkstatt de Kultur in Neukon. And it just got crazy, honestly, for a hot minute. It was just like I was ping-ponging between London and Berlin, catering and doing supper clubs and pop-ups. And I was like, hang on a minute, universe. What is this? This is clearly something. So I came back to London and figured out that, you know, basically not enough people knew about Africa full stop, like out of the context of stereotypes from the 80s definitely not about the foods from across Africa specifically my concern was Ghana because I'm Ghanaian but once I realized what the problems were and there were many in terms of translating the cuisine from the diaspora having like this relationship with it where they thought it wasn't healthy or good or of value intrinsically for its own worth and so there's lots of different barriers going on and I guess I've decided that Ghana Kitchen was going to be this bridge that would bring people into the culture 
through food um, and bring people together generally through the love of cooking, you know, and eating together. Because I, I love a good dinner party, always have done. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so interesting to see how those two paths coincided for you and collided and brought you to this place. And then I know you you go on sort of a, a research trip back to Ghana, mm. connect with some of your family. Can you contextualize that trip for us first? Because I want, I want to hear about it. But is that before you had the book deal? That is before I had the book deal. It was, it was definitely designed to build my repertoire out because I had a very small menu from 2010. No, yeah, from 2010 to 2012. I was literally just cooking dishes that my dad had cooked, like recreating those dishes. Um, but that was fine because, you know, I wasn't running a restaurant or anything. I was doing supper clubs and pop-ups and was mix and match these things across different spaces. However, there did come a point where I was like, hang on, even I'm getting bored. <laughs> um, and I need to learn. I need to learn more about this cuisine and more about the food and the ingredients. But also I was particularly interested to know what else was possible with them without, you know, going down the tunnel of cultural appropriation or being seen to be doing that, which it seems is intrinsically unavoidable in the global <laughs> in the global space of cuisine. But nonetheless, you know, I was concerned personally that Ghanaians were because I wanted to kind of modernise it and play with the ingredients and replace it and reimagine it and, you know, and give it to a new audience, but also give it to the diaspora in a way they hadn't recognised before. So I was I was very concerned with that notion of my authority to do that, you know. So going back in some ways is like a reinforcement of, well, you know, this is what we do all the time, isn't it? We have to look backwards in order to go forward in terms of history, in terms of culture, to learn and bring that into where we are now. So that's essentially what I did. Yeah, in 2013, I had an amazing trip. Um, the double part of that was that you know, I hadn't connected with my family in Ghana since I was a baby. So it was a huge kind of reunion. So it was loaded in loads of other ways. So the trip was just really amazing for so many reasons. And I got to, you know, I got to reconnect with my grandmother and my uncles and aunts and people like that. But also I got to tour the coast of Ghana, excuse me, and go up the Volta region. And I would just pop my head in, you know, whenever I was eating the kitchens, these places are like little shacks, really, chop bars for the most part. and you know, sometimes there is no divider for the kitchen and sometimes there's a little rippy curtain and I would just poke my head in and be like, that was amazing. Can you show me how you made that? And uh -huh. I'd say I was successful maybe seven out of 10 times. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> and, good. <laughs> not a bad ratio. And yeah, that's what I did. I, and I just had this amazing experience of learning so much from all the women in my family. Sadly, none of the men cook in my family, which is probably atypical of the situation in the world. I got to learn how to make jollof with three different women from three different tribes who made it each, you know, each made it differently, which I thought was amazing and fascinating. And then there was this abundance of fresh ingredients and plant-based diets. And, you know, my dad had always cooked out of cans growing up. So my inference from that was, oh, they don't have fresh fruits and vegetables there probably because of the climate, right? But I was very, very, very sadly mistaken because there was just this huge abundance and wealth of amazing ingredients and spices. I just fell in love all over again with the food and had a deep dive into it. And yeah, and came yeah. back with the recipes for this cookbook, essentially. And more importantly, with the license, the license to be able to play with the, the traditional in order to reimagine it a little bit. And over time, of course, I got more confident doing that. But yeah. Sure. Yeah, you felt that was important to 
travel to experience the culture in order to have that license? You, you thought that was really important before you embarked on a book and all of that? Yeah, for me, for my standards of integrity sure. and the stuff like that, it's like, I mean, I could have written a cookbook sitting in my flat in London and having had no reference, you know, but this cookbook then wouldn't have any soul because it's, you know, it's very much, I mean, my journey's in this book. It's like, it's not a memoir by any stretch, but it's very, yeah, there's recipes that will tell you where I was when I ate it or who I learned it from. And there's soundtracks in there and there's stories around certain markets and experiences while commuting around for these recipes. So yeah, if I hadn't taken that trip, I think that this book could have lost a lot of the soul from it. You know, it would be a different book. Yeah. For sure. You you touched you touched on this a little bit with, you know, canned versus fresh ingredients, but did that trip change your trajectory as a chef and how you thought about Ghanaian food and were there other sort of revelations or I know you also wrote about like with the Ghana dal recipe about the um, abundance of ingredients that are not indigenous to West Africa, mm. but that traveled there through the spice trade and like were there other takeaways from that trip that sort of shaped your culinary approach to food yeah absolutely i mean of course there's learning all the different myriads i mean just even like groundnut soup the dish that was my signature dish in, in the uk for a long time there's so many variations to that and not just in ghana but across west africa between togo nigeria senegal like everybody has their own version of that It'll be it'll be familiar to everybody, but everybody will have their own version of it, you know. And I came away with that a lot of the time, that each tribe has their own preference, even in terms of kenke, which is fermented corn dough, you know, like my grandmother is fancy and then they have fancy kenke, which is wrapped in plantain, that's a particular kind of palate required for that. And then, you know, gar kenke is most popular across all the parts. And then, you know, just learning the abundance of seafood from like, octopus and squid and all this amazing seafood that I didn't imagine would be there but of course it is the Atlantic's right there you know on the coast at least but then you travel up north and then you're in a different environment again not just um, environmentally in the landscape but that affects the diet there and what is fermented and how much food is fermented and you know so I just honestly learned so so much and I think when you come back armoured with knowledge you're excited to then um, explore and play and yeah the influence of the spice roots and the various colonials who'd been through Ghana from the Portuguese to the British all left something in the cuisine you know so all of that was hugely revelatory and as I said I came back excited to finesse what I had learned but also to extrapolate and reimagine and play as much as possible and showcase the ingredients and flavours because that was seemingly an ever expansive expanding catalogue as well as all the indigenous spices and things that my dad wouldn't have used cooking because he's not no he's not an auntie but you know he was doing his best to recreate childhood dishes from memory so it was just very interesting to see how all of the pieces fitted together and what was possible within that jigsaw of, of diet and cuisine you also included uh, a soundtrack in the book and, and music sort of throughout. And there's this underlying concept of music being really important to your life. Can you talk about that decision mm-hmm. to, I, we've seen it in a number of cookbooks, but of course, you know, you, you first wrote this book in 2014, 
before some of the more recent uh, examples I have of folks who have included music. What was that decision process like for you? Did you know that would be a a part of the book going into it? And why did you choose to do that? Really, honestly, no, I didn't. But what I knew was that I wanted the book to, to have as many different feelings of the culture as possible. You can't make a cookbook, an encyclopedia of Ghanaian culture. And also, I wasn't an expert necessarily in Ghanaian culture. I'm still learning today because, like I said, I have this this disconnect for so many years, and then it's still a process of, you know, absorbing and melding with it all. You know, and I'm continually learning about Ghana. It's a huge country. All that is to say, what do you think? <laughs> I've forgotten what the question was. Um, music. Oh, sorry. So I tell you what happened. And I have made it a practice of mine at supper clubs to have soundtracks, to have fabrics, to have um, art, and to all have all those elements. So, of course, I would love, I wanted that in the book, but I wasn't thinking specifically about how I would fit music into it because it's not the first thing you think of. It's a visual medium, a cookbook, isn't it? However, I had one of the very, very few books I could take any inspiration from when I was writing this book was Bryant Terry's Afro Vegan. And he had a track for every, yeah, every recipe. And I was like, wow, that is such an amazing idea. Obviously, I didn't want to copy that straight up. And I doubt I had the energy or the time to (laughs) compose a tight track for each recipe in my particular book. Um, But I was inspired by that idea of music in the book. And I thought, well, you know what? I have a Ghana Kitchen Spotify playlist. I'm just going to contact one of my DJ friends and say, can you curate something that feels like, this and curate another one that feels like this and we'll have something to cook to and something to eat to so that people can get um you know a vibe get a bit of fun happening in the kitchen when they're cooking and get a sense of ghana and like you know part of it is wanting to take people there you know visually and audibly and obviously always through the flavor (laughs) yeah i love that in terms of bringing people there, you know, the title is Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. The subtitle includes an introduction to new African cuisine from Ghana with love. But you've talked a bit about, to this idea, particularly from Western audiences, to group African food uh, into one sort of monolithic cuisine. Mm. And I know you, you, it's been a number of years since you first wrote this book. I'm wondering how you think things are changing, like how how we're doing in terms of shining a light on the myriad of cuisines across Africa. I know particularly for you, a focus on, on Ghanaian cuisine. I wanted initially, my first reaction was to be positive with you on this. and No need to be positive. I, I know, but no, that was my initial reaction because we have seen some beautiful books come out. Um, How Hassan's book, obviously Ethiopia's mm-hmm. come out. There are many in the pipeline I'm aware of, but probably can't talk about because I know lots of chefs of African descent who have recently got cookbook deals. So there will be in the next few years a flurry, which I'm grateful to see, of different types of voices around sometimes even the same type of cuisine because that is important also. I don't think at this point we have enough visibility and not saying we're all the way there because African chefs are still not getting their flowers, frankly. <laughs> um, yeah. But we have made enough leaps and bounds that it's on people's minds and people are interested and engaged with it. I think we need to get people away from West Africa a bit more. I mean, I'm West African. I love everything West Africa, but it's a huge continent. 
and not much is known yet still in terms of you know the everyday diner or home cooks information on what food is like in South Africa or even southern you know let's say you know Rwanda uh, Kenya Uganda that part of East Africa or Namibia Zambia like there's so many parts of unexplored yet I mean when I say unexplored I mean I don't mean that of course they exist they've been there for thousands of years those diets and cuisines but out of Africa very little is known about them out other than in the communities that have migrated so there's still like this there's a huge way to go but like West Africa is very very established now and I can think I can think of at least maybe four or five books that are going to come out next year on West African food, and that's amazing. My particular lens has changed a little bit from Ghana to widen out to West Africa, but in the future, I'm kind of more concerned with Pan-Africa because my focus is on ingredients now as much as it is on the recipes themselves. But, I mean, I'm hopeful that the trajectory continues, and I hope people engage with it and the cuisines in the way that I would love people to engage with Nigerian or Ghanaian cuisine in the way that they do with Italy. And for us in five to 10 years to be able to talk about the different regional cuisines in Nigeria and the different regional cuisines in Ghana, because we're still at this point, sadly, where people will say, you know, and it's an understandable, honest question, but there isn't a good answer to it because there isn't a right answer. And it's the kind of question like, what is the cornerstone of this cuisine and what is what is, how do you define Ghanaian cuisine? You can't because there's so many tribes, so many food cultures, the landscape is completely different. So therefore what's available to eat, farm and grow is completely different. So, you know, I, I would love that, that let's have a more nuanced conversation about African foods, plural, because it's not a country, it's a continent. And I think people just need to keep remembering that there are 54 types of cuisine on that continent. And while they may all share some similarities country to country who are neighbours in terms of what the ingredients are. Certainly the preparation and the spice preparation and the cooking styles and how they're eaten will be different because they're different countries with different cultures. And in, in terms of the cookbook industry, you, you noted that, you know, we're starting to see some progress there. We talk a lot about decolonizing the food industry. And I'm curious with publishing in particular, like what are the steps in your mind that would really help us achieve that? Certainly giving authors of African descent cookbook deals is like a, a start and a right step. But like the broader industry is still very much controlled by white folks and white men in particular, publishing at large. Do you have thoughts on how we sort of move beyond just giving cookbook deals to really shine a light on the diversity of African cuisines? Beyond cookbook deals? Well, I think it all starts with representation of some kind or another, because you can't be what you can't see. And I mean, I've seen that. I've lived that experience myself. So cookbook deals are great. But for me, I mean, the book I'm working on right now, for example, is a canon. It's a canon of African chefs in the diaspora. And I think we're only just starting to see a couple of certain chefs from the continent break through onto the international stage. But there are so many more of them. So it's about now getting the platforms to these kinds of um, chefs who are doing incredible work getting them noticed, getting the getting them and the cuisine noticed, because sadly in publishing, it's all about personality really, isn't it? It's, it's very personality driven. It's not, not so much about if you are an expert, it's like, can we make you look like one? So, you know, there is like the deep thinking that needs to, to change just in terms of 
how you represent food, how you represent a culture. Um, I believe that work is underway for the most part, but it's then, but how do you find the talent and can it not always be the same 10, 20 people who are getting the profile? And I think that's true for all the cuisine. Like there's plenty of cuisines who suffer from that problem, I think. it's um, We just need to be more generous with the spread of coverage and with the variance in cuisines as well, because as I say, West African cuisine is very dominant right now in, in food media. Rightly so. We have been working very hard for a number of years to put it there. But we have certain privileges, perhaps, those of us whose voices have broken through that won't necessarily be afforded to people on the continent, you know. So it's like, at the end of the day, they're doing the deep work because they're on the ground and inspiring the rest of us, you know. So it's about finding ways to um, to do that. And, well, you need to hire editors that care passionately about that, you know. Oh who want to see that those voices heard and recognized yeah. honestly they should all hire me and i'd do a great job of <laughs> i <up> agree <laughs> all my <Yes>. people <laughs> giving them deals that they need um but, but yeah. beyond that you know tv and whatever other success people think you know i mean i don't know it's all you know that kind of things with relatives isn't it you can be on the telly and not feel successful but you can have sure. a 12 seat fine dining farm table Thing in the middle of the Congo and be living your best life and be thinking like you this is you know this is the dream I have the best restaurant in the world in the jungle so you know it's um cut a very long narrative short I think it's about um platform finding ways to platform voices as much as possible and I know that that is something I'm trying to do increasingly as I go forward yeah and it's not always up to the publisher to do that it's for us to do that as well as cooks and chefs and support our community and help bring out you know use the ladder and help bring people up. I'm Cleo Worcester, Salt and Spine producer. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin to Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash saltandspine. Are there books, cookbooks, or authors who have been particularly influential to you over the course of your career? I know you mentioned you're working on another book now. Um, are there people that you have turned to for inspiration or that were just crucial for you as you were coming up? It's an interesting one because honestly, you know, I, well, I've, I've told you my, my, how I started with this. It wasn't like I had some deep, desperate longing and yearning to all that I was aware of anyway, you know, sure. to um, be deep in the culinary bed of Ghanaian cuisine. So I sure. wasn't, and I have no culinary, formal culinary training. You know, I'm self-taught and all of that. And I, I didn't come up through hospitality industry. I didn't come up through any kind of traditional model. So if anyone's out there and it's like, <laughs> how do I do this without doing that and spending loads of money? 
do I did. <laughs> basically, avoid the status quo and do it all the other way. Um, yeah. But all that is to say, I didn't have a heavy inspiration of cookbooks and cookbook writers. I mean, over, and to be honest, I felt originally, I felt a bit, I often wondered whether all the people who had so many cookbooks in their like Instagram groups ever read any of them or had even opened any of them or whether they were just all free gifts sent from like one publishing house to another publishing house around <laughs> book launch day. Like, have you even opened one of those books? I don't know. Um, so I have a small collection, but they are well thumbed and used. And quite often, honestly, some of them are mostly like food writing or not necessarily, you know, obviously High on the Hog and Alexander Smalls with Grace the Table. But I hadn't even thought about American black writing until maybe, you know, six or seven years ago because there just wasn't any in the UK. So there's a very small repertoire. But now, you know, inspiration comes from all sorts of places when it comes to food. It's, I don't know, who's up on my shelf? Everybody's up there. Um, Howard Hassan, Gishoum. Sabrina Gayor. I mean, her first cookbook actually was the inspiration for the cover of my first book. Um, Bryant's up there. Pierre's up there. All my mates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, there's yeah. A, if there's a black chef with a cookbook out, I've got it. Um, and yeah. I may have some others. Like, I've got some Nigel Slater's and Nigella's. But, and also, oh, and Ju- Jubilee and Carla Hall, Tony Moore. They're, they're all in um, New York. All the American writers are over there and all the British writers are here. What do you think then, since um, I like that you are selective in your books and that you're not a person who just wants a vanity wall of 5,000 cookbooks behind you that are never opened. You're, you're selective. And so I'm curious then what you look for or what you think makes a good cookbook. If it's a book that you really love, what is a, a trait that it has that makes it so? Ooh, it has to teach me something that um, I really want to know. But <laughs> um, yeah. so also like books on fermentation or Koji, Koji Alchemy, Koji Alchemy, that book, so I love that. The name of fermented book, I love that. So anything about ferments, pickles, acids, processed books, I love those. And when it comes to the food writers and, you know, writing cookbooks that you cook from, I think for me it's like when it doesn't feel forced like I always want to know that when I'm looking at a book that the person whose name is on the front has had a good amount of time involved in making that you can I feel like you can tell when somebody's in the book and when they're not in the book just kind of I don't know the energy of it just comes out you know what I mean so I'm looking for a voice that's like casual and inviting um inviting you to be curious but also not being too strict about the rules and being like this is this but you could do this if you want or I don't know. That's how I like it. Because that's how I like to write. So I don't like to ever, yeah. I don't like hard and fast rules and about cuisines because I know from experience that they can be adapted from home to home in the country of origin and from city to city. So there's a little bit of leeway and license. But anything that evokes a culture is bright and lively and lovely and not, you know, intimidating. So anything that's accessible. And it's about something yeah. I know nothing about. I think that's a, a great answer. And I love that it teaches you something, that you learn something from it. Mm. Well, we always end with a little game. So we have these fun cards here. And I know that you, from starting Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, are, are now known as a person who can put together a wonderful pop-up dinner, a wonderful <laughs> supper club with, at a 
a moment's notice if need be. So that's our theme today. We're going to pretend that uh, someone's called you and said, let's do a, a dinner. And oh, wow. here's what we have. Here are the ingredients that we have to work with. So we'll draw some Ooh. random cards here and see what we can come up with. How does that sound? Sounds scary, but go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think we'll be fine. I, I, I don't think it's too scary. Um, we have proteins, vegetables, flavors, which are herbs and spices, things. And then our secret ingredient deck has sort of wild card, more potentially more obscure. So let's start with a protein. Okay, we have beans is our first mm. protein. Our vegetable we're working with is cabbage. Mm. Our flavor is nutmeg. Ooh. And let's go for a secret ingredient. Okay, we have dragon fruit. Mm. All right, so we're putting together a supper club. We have beans, cabbage, nutmeg, and dragon fruit. What might we make? Beans. Cabbage. I mean, I'm going to go for the obvious with the cabbage and nutmeg and do like, um, you know, <laughs> shredded, <laughs> shredded cabbage with some lovely, um, with all that gorgeous calabash nutmeg. Maybe a tiny, can we allowed to add any other ingredients or it just has to be? Oh, honest? yeah. Yeah. You can assume you have a, a pantry, a larder, oh, other, you can pantry. bring things in. Okay, yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, we're going to soften some butter and some um, rapeseed oil and then we're going to toss it. The, the cabbage in that with the nutmeg and just a pinch of cinnamon and let mm. that go off some lovely hibiscus salt or aqua salt or something. It makes it just a really simple, um, like bean cassavet. Do we know what kind of beans they are? Oh. No, it's open-ended. So maybe we'll use like, you know, um, botelli or cannellini or something. We'll have like a nice cassavet type arrangement going on. And then we'll have like a dragon fruit ice cream. I think, oh. like a dragon fruit sorbet, like a handmade yeah. sorbet, you know, old school. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. That's what I think. We have a bean castaway with a nice side of like crispy, fragrant, um, spiced cabbage. Yeah. And then sorbet for dessert. Oh, that sounds so nice and comforting as we're headed into fall, like a, a nice um, cassoulet. Let's do one more round. Thanksgiving dinner, that. I know that was that was so great. Let's see what let's do one more. Uh, okay, protein. We have ground beef. Mm-hmm. Our vegetable this time is onion. Doesn't specify. Could be well. It looks like the, the red in the picture, but could be any onion. So ground beef, onion. Our flavor is uh, chili flakes, red pepper flakes, and the secret ingredient we are working with is matzo matzo oh, flatbread matzah. i need my wife for this okay <laughs> matzo oh good all right good well i mean i'm just it's just screaming tacos but i'm like what do you do with matzo in a taco situation can we make um okay ground beef onion chili flakes matzo can we make oh oh we're going to make meatballs because my mother-in-law puts crumbled matzo into the meatballs. There we go. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to soften, we'll caramelize and stuff. And see how excited I was to, to, to Yes, that I saw it click there. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to soften and caramelize those onions so they're really sticky and delicious. 
some sugary and with some chili flakes, um, tiny bit of garlic, dehydrated garlic or garlic powder in oil. And then, yeah, incorporate the beef, maybe a touch of cumin a little bit, mm. and then a little bit of ground coriander. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then crumble the matzahs in with the mix, mix it into your, your meatballs, put them in the oven for 25 minutes. And then stick them in your sauce on the hob for the final 20 minutes of cook time and chuck it over pasta, chuck it over spaghetti. That's going to be wonderful. That sounds delicious. Is it? Is it a tomato sauce? I've, I've added tomato sauce to this in my head. I didn't describe it. Yes. Verbally, but it's definitely <laughs> tomato sauce. But how about that? Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, that was so much fun. Um, thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us on Salt and Spine. This was so great. Oh, I had a lovely time. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes, and you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine's studio home is the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks as well as in-person classes. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Mm-hmm.